isn't Luke as good up here? Yeah, yeah. Now, Luke Hazelmeyer's seminar is actually Tuesday afternoon. He's going to do a seminar on leadership development at the regional. And then Will's speaking Tuesday night. So, yeah, if you can come, come. And uh, what, at, any, at any rate, uh, pray for them, okay, and pray for the whole thing. And then I think it's Wednesday morning about 9.30, Derry and Tyler are going to lead worship. All right, I have one joke for you. And um, it was sent to my wife by Priscilla Schmidt, and my wife gave it to me. So this comes to me through two mature, godly women. I want to tell you that. I'm going to read it to you because I'll mess it up if I don't. Ron Chester, 89 years of age, was stopped by the police around 2 a.m. and was asked where he was going at that time of night. Ron replied, I'm on my way to a lecture about alcohol abuse and the effects it has on the human body, as well as the detriment of cigar smoking and staying out late. The officer was surprised. He said, really, who's giving a lecture on that at this time of night? Ron replied, that would be my wife. (laughs) Not bad, huh? Yeah. We're going to talk today about uh, this, this anniversary, and I'm going to share some of the history of the church with you and uh, some, some perspectives on all of that. But first, I want to share with you something that we received from Vineyard USA uh, recently. It's uh, a plaque, an honor to us as a church body uh, called the Barnabas Award. And um, let's look at it. Is it up there? There it is. Okay. Uh, 2015 Barnabas Award, Vineyard Church Northwest. That's us, okay? You realize that that's us, that this building is not the church. This building is the facility the church meets in, okay? So, uh, you've been a Barnabas uh, who encourages through your generosity. Thank you for demonstrating your commitment to community and mission with other Vineyard Churches through Vineyard USA. You can leave that up there for a moment. I'm going to read just a portion of the letter to you. Uh, Barnabas was a man in the book of Acts that sacrificed in order to give. And, uh, and he was named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement uh, by the apostles. And so um, here's what they say. It, as Barnabas did, in the same way your church community has brought encouragement through your generosity. Even while sowing into your local church efforts, obviously meaning we we pay for ourselves, you know, we for for the budget here and everything we do, even while sowing into your local church efforts, your faithful giving to Vineyard USA is an empowering action that fuels and enables our movement to make a kingdom impact in communities near and far. We've designed a plaque for your church to display in recognition of your faithful support of our Vineyard family. This plaque is called the Barnabas Award and is given to Vineyard churches that encourage Vineyard USA with their exemplary generosity. So uh, it's a cool thing. I want to say that's all of you as well as uh, me. I mean, it's it's all of us together that uh, receive this. So thank you for giving. And um, just a historical note on this. When we became a vineyard in 2001, at that point in time, um, the kind of the um, 
ask was 3%. They asked Vineyard Churches to give 3% to support the national office and uh, the church planting effort and uh, leadership development efforts that the, the vineyard does on a national worldwide basis, actually. And then uh, a few years later, the agreement was made that it wasn't an ask, it was an agreement that all, all vineyard churches agreed to give that. But at the very beginning, it, it, it was uh, 3%, and that was a lot of money. And we're a new church starting, and we're beginning as a church, and we don't really have anything and so it was uh, brought up that maybe we shouldn't give that because we need it here. But we decided as we processed through that, that that wasn't the way we were going to view things. And, and we said, look, if we're going to be part of this, then we're going to do our part. And if we're going to be part, if we're going to have the name Vineyard, and if this is going to be our family, then we're going to be a full part of the family. We're going to engage with the family and we're going we're to support and give to the family. And so every year uh, for the last 15 years of our church's life, we've given 3% of our general fund offerings uh, to the vineyard to uh, support and to help those ministries that, uh, that we all do together as vineyards uh, internationally and nationally. So that's a cool thing and, um, and uh, really thankful to be part of the vineyard. How many of you um, are thankful to be in a vineyard? I mean, this is a cool place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too, for sure. Um, in fact, I left the vineyard once and I sat down once and cried. I visited the vineyard and I just thought, what have I done? You know, I, so uh, love it, really love it. All right, this church body, um, we, we had our first meeting in this building 10 years ago, the first week of June. And so that's what this is, the first week of June. I think it was June 6th that year, but um, so we're very close. But um, this weekend marks 10 years in this facility, and we're going to talk more about that as, as this message unfolds. But first, I wanted to read a verse to you to kind of give some context to it. And uh, I want to stop and pray right now, too. So join me in prayer. Father... Um, we come to you right now, and we're, we're, just, we're just saying we want to hear from you. Father, we know that, that you work through stories, and, uh, and we can glorify you through our stories. And that's what we pray will happen today, that you'll be, you're, you're, your name will be lifted up, that you'll be, you'll be honored and glorified, and that you'll stir faith in each one of our hearts. So, Father, uh, lead us through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Men. All right, Acts 3.13. Let's look at that verse. Very simple verse. You could look, overlook it very quickly, very easily, but here's what it says. This is Peter in a sermon he's preaching, and uh, he says this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, a lot of things you could look at there, but uh, the thing I want to focus on is this statement, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, in other places in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, it refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in some places it refers to God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, which if that was the case, what it would emphasize is the continuity of who God is 
that he's the same God each time in each generation. But because of the way it's worded here, the emphasis here is not on the consistency of who God is, but it's, it's on, the emphasis is on the fact that God is a three-generation God. He is a, he, he's a God of overlapping generations. And what, what that means is that what he's doing in one generation, he started in the previous generation and he's going to carry on in the next generation. And it goes on beyond three generations even. Now, now, in our culture, we have a tendency to subdivide everything and segregate everything. And sociologists have divided the generations up in our culture such that uh, even in this room, we have at least six different generations, according to the sociologists. The, the builders, who would be the pre-World War II, World War II generation. And then the boomers, those that uh, at the end of World War II, all the babies that were born in that, in that uh, era. And then you have the busters. How would you like to be a buster? Yeah, I mean, boom sounds good. Boom, big, bust. Yeah, I'm a bust. So I, that's not a very good name. But then the next group, they didn't know what to name, so they just called them Gen Xers. And uh, then, then you come to, fortunately, the, we, we changed millennium. We changed uh, uh, centuries and, and, and entered into a new millennium. So those that are from that era are called millennials. That's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Yeah, I'd like to be a millennial, I think. If I could be anything, I want to be a millennial. But uh, then the next generation, Gen Y, and they're also called boomlets. And you could go through and subdivide these all over the place, you know. But uh, that, that's the sociological viewpoint. And you know what God looks at and God, God sees? God sees us here, and he says, yeah, this is one generation. He sees us and says, this is my generation. He doesn't see us as all divided out and segmented and we all need different things and, and, and on and on. He sees us as one generation. And think about that. God is a God of generations and we're tied together. And what we do is, you know, we have the baton in our hands right now, okay? And what we do is we pass the baton on someday, we will pass that baton on. But, but for right now, it's just comforting to know that I am not part of one narrow slice of the population that is isolated and segmented. I'm part of something bigger in God's eyes. And you are part of something bigger in God's eyes. You don't have to be a buster, okay? Uh, you're, you're part of God's generation, what, whatever, whatever era you were born in in the last 50 years or so. And that's an important thing. That's healing for our hearts. You know, and it's also comforting to the kind of like the frenetic um, sense of anxiety that we can have that we have to do everything right, that we, that we have to, boy, we have to be careful that we pass this on the right way because it was here before we got here. Do you know that? You know, the kingdom of God didn't just start in the last 10 years. The kingdom was here before you and I came on the scene and the kingdom of God will be here after we leave the scene. And so there's a sense of peace in that. There's a sense of comfort in that. We don't have to be perfect to, for the kingdom to pass on. What we do, we do have to hold on to the baton, you know. That's what we have to do. Hold on to the baton. And we have to hold on to the baton so we don't drop it, so we can pass it on when the time comes. But in a paradox, do you know what it means to hold on to the baton? 
you have to take all sorts of risks just to hold on to that baton. You know, you would think, hold on to the baton, we've got to protect it, got to hide it, got to shield it, got to put up all sorts of boundaries around it and not let anyone touch it. But the baton that we have in our hands, the kingdom, is not, it's not metal, it's not lifeless, it's a living thing. And for any living thing to grow and to progress, it takes risk. I mean, how many of you drove to work this week? You had to, didn't you? Why? Because you have to get food. That's a risk. You get in the car, you're taking a risk. It takes risk for living things to prosper and move ahead. And, and so what we have as a charge, as a generation, what we hold, we, we can't just use our human wisdom and try to protect it and preserve it. We have to hold it the way God asks us to hold it. And that means we have to be on the cutting edge of what God's doing and what God wants us to do with it. And we have to be willing to step out of the boat. We have to be willing not to bury the talent. There's a parable in the Bible where a, a, a master gives each of his servants some money. And one of them, just out of fear of losing it, buries it. And when, when the master comes back, he's upset with that guy because he said, you should have invested this. I wanted you to risk it so that it would grow because living things have to risk in order to grow. And there's a verse in the Bible that um, talks about this, Isaiah 42, 9. It says this. Uh, this is um, God speaking through the prophet. And God says, see, the former things have taken place. And new things I now declare to you. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. See what he says, former things, the things I announced to you before they've happened. You can look, you can see what's happened. I'm doing something new today. And I'm going to announce this new thing to you, and it's going to happen too. And, and, I, and I tell you ahead. See, God says he doesn't do anything without telling his prophets first. That's one of the reasons that the gift of prophecy is so important in a church body. Because as we hear prophetic words from different key people that we know are, are gifted that way, that they hear from God in, in the big picture often, and they get a sense of what God's doing and, and how things are moving. When we start to hear the same or similar messages from uh, different prophetically gifted people, then we, we perk our ears up and we say, okay, God's doing something. You know, for instance, back in 2012, we started getting prophetic words that God was going to begin doing something new as far as the work of the Holy Spirit went. One of them said, I'm going to do a new thing here, but it's not a new thing. It's an old thing. It's the thing you've desired all along. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We got other words like that. And, and as a result of those words and as a result of us hearing them and just welcoming them, we're seeing a move of the Holy Spirit in this church right now like we've desired all along, but it's a fresh new thing and to a greater degree than we've ever seen before as far as God's presence is concerned in worship, as far as the effectiveness of going out on the streets and praying for people, seeing people healed. We're seeing more of that than ever before. But it's, there's this new thing God's doing, and we always have to be ready for the new thing. And that takes risk. And so we can't just hold on to it and, and hang back and think that that's going to preserve it. It takes risk to preserve the kingdom, to hold on to the baton. Um, it took risk for this church to start. It was risk that brought this church about. And uh, there, were, there was a point where um, 
uh, Lori and I had a big decision to make. We, we moved here in 1999 to pastor a church, a good church, great church filled with great people. But after being there for a while, found out that some of the things that we held very, very dear to our hearts regarding Holy Spirit ministry wasn't going to be accepted there the way we had hoped. And so we came to a point where there was, there was one day in particular, I remember walking into the office and, and I'm thinking, maybe I should just play it safe. I mean, I've got a wife, two kids at home, two kids in college. And I'm thinking, this is a job. You know, it's a set, maybe I should, maybe I should just yield on some of these things that, uh, you know, that are important to me. Maybe I should set them aside, still get to do a whole lot of good stuff for God. But, um, you know, maybe I should just play it safe and, and, and keep the job. And as soon as I thought that God spoke to me and said this, he said, there's no safe way to play it safe. You get that? Yeah. Playing it safe is inherently dangerous. Get that? Playing it safe is inherently dangerous. When it comes to the kingdom, that's the way it is. That's the way it works. And, and boy, that just slammed me. I just thought, okay, then let, let's, let's lean on the side of risk. A, a friend of ours in our first church was named Charlie Humpley. He was a World War II veteran, a hero. He had won the Distinguished Service Cross, fought for three years in the South Pacific. And he told me about one battle he was in that um, where he was running for his life. He was being chased uh, by the enemy. They were shooting at him as he was running. And he's, he's, he was running through an old, um, I think it was a, a, a orange grove or something. And he knew as soon as he got to the beach and dove over onto the beach, he'd be covered because there was a machine gun nest, a U.S. machine gun nest covering that beach. And he ran and he dove on, dove over the hill, you know, down, tumbled down onto the beach. And he expected to hear that M, M50, the uh, 50 Cal open up and it didn't. And so Charlie's now, now he's huff, uh, hoofing it down the beach with people shooting at him, just trying to, you know, just trying to survive. And he finally gets down to the place where this gun emplacement is. And he, he, he runs up and, and jumps into the, into the, um, enclosure they had to the gun emplacement they had. And here the two guys that were supposed to be manning that, that uh, 50 Kel were huddled down at the bottom of the hole, covering their heads. They heard the shooting. They, they were not willing to risk and do their job. Charlie was the platoon sergeant, so he read them the riot act and moved on. But he had to come back that way later. And he said he found those two guys dead. Charlie said this. He said, man... When you're in war, you have to risk to stay safe. Because if you just huddle down, then the enemy can just walk right up to you, right up to your position. There's nothing to keep them away and and you're toast. And this whole idea, we have to be willing to risk. You have to be willing to risk in your life to grow spiritually, to fulfill your call, to do what God's called you to do personally. You have to be willing to risk. You have to be willing to lay things on the line and say, God, I'm putting it out there. Whatever happens is okay because you're calling me to do this. I'm going to risk it. There it is. I'm moving ahead with you. I'm not going to try to play it safe because there's no safe way to play it safe. 
And so God spoke that to me, and these, these things all came to me. And Lori and I agreed that it was time for us to take a risk, to step out. And so at the end of the year 2000, um, we left that, that church and, and tried to leave as, as good-heartedly as possible and blessing and, 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 and everything. But we left also saying God called us to Cincinnati, and we're staying in Cincinnati because God gave us a vision for a church and gave us a vision for what he wanted us to do. So we're staying in Cincinnati and we're going to plant a church here. But we waited several months before we took any steps that direction. And, and then in the spring of 2001, uh, sometime in March, uh, we invited a few people over to pray with us. And there were three other couples that came over that first night. And uh, we met and we prayed and uh, met a couple, few more times, and then there were more people that wanted to come, and um, and God was good. He br- he brought good people around us, and and before long we had a gathering of I don't know thirty forty people. And guess where they met? In our basement. Guess where house group meets now? In our basement. Isn't that cool? Same place. So there are forty young adults now. Do you know this? Lori and I don't even go home on Friday nights. Uh, because we, we give them a key. They take over the whole, they use every room in our house except our bedroom. And when Wilson was leading in that house, periodically he would extend himself and break into the bedroom. <laughs> but, um, that, but, um, but it started in our basement. And uh, so that's just really cool to know what's happening there now with house group. But uh, it wasn't long until we realized we need another place to meet. And we were looking, we were searching, and Lori and I are driving around John Green, searching everything he can. If you know John, he was a trustee at that time. And I mean, we're stopping at every bar that looks like it has a back room, you know, and every place that looks like they have a room that 100 people can meet in, uh, we're, we're stopping and checking. It could not find any place anywhere. Didn't qualify to meet in the school systems here because we already had more than 50% of the people with us were not from the Northwest school system. And then one day I was driving past this little church on Springdale Road, and I, and I saw a car in the parking lot, and I thought, well, I'm going to drive in and talk to them. So I pulled in. It was an elder in the church, Springdale Chapel. If you drive up Springdale Road, it's just a mile or so, maybe half a mile up. Wonderful people, a great church. And um, I told him what we were doing, and, and he said, you know what? He said, I'll bet this is the kind of thing we'd like to do. So let me talk to our pastor, and I'll get, we'll get back with you. That was Thursday. By that Sunday, I hear from the pastor, or Monday, I think it was Sunday, I heard from the pastor, and he said, yeah, we've talked about this, and you can use our church on Saturday nights if you want to. Uh, Just come over, and I'll give you a key. And so I I went over, I got a key the first time I meet the pastor, and he says, you know, we like the vineyard, we've read books, you know, by, uh, from the vineyard, we really, and so just take this key and make as many copies as you need. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? So we met there for 10 months. Well, three out of four Saturday nights. And then the fourth, we had to find another place because they had their youth meeting that night. But um, at the same time, we made contact with the YMCA because Matt Durkers, who's sitting right over here right now, waved everybody, Matt, would you stand up? Come on, come on. There's Matt, yeah. Matt had worked at the Y, so he got us in touch with the Y and... In God's providence, there was a young woman there 
that um, had planted a church in Michigan, a believer. And so she was all for this. She was the assistant director. And she kind of like was our, our, um, our voice and representative. And th- then we negotiated with the wife for close to 10 months. But um, I, I want to back up a step, okay? And I want to give you a little bit of picture of the worship development here. At the very beginning... Uh, even before we started meeting at Springdale Chapel, I collected all the musicians that we had, everyone that could play a guitar and sing, and would meet at our house and uh, would do worship practice. And, and I really felt like God spoke to me and said that um, God hadn't brought us our worship leader yet. Now, a couple of the people in that group had led worship other places and, and could have, but I really felt like God said, no, the, the, the person that's going to lead this isn't here yet. So I told them all that, and they all received it well. But, you know, this was such a wonderful group. Do you know how we did worship practice? I would play a worship song for them. By the way, I don't read music, um, nothing like that. I'd play a worship song for them, and then I'd pass out the sheet music to them and let them play it, and I would listen, and then I would tell them what they did wrong. And, you know, try to correct them. And now uh, your voice went wrong there. It's supposed to be like this. And, and so, they, man, you can, you can imagine how gracious a group this was. Um, so the very first uh, service we had at the Springdale Chapel was the first weekend of June 2001. All right, so that makes this a 15-year reunion for the very first public worship service we had as a church. Isn't that cool? Yeah, so it's a double reunion. Yeah, awesome. Well, I had met Tyler Brown earlier than that. We had lunch and talked, told our stories and what was going on in each of our lives and and et cetera. And Tyler and and his family were there for that very first service. And, um, but, but, you know, I knew Tyler was a worship leader an accomplished worship leader, and uh, Tyler, uh, yet I really sensed Tyler needed to just come and just be valued, and, and not like, okay, you're a worship leader, well then, we're going to use you, and so I, I just really felt like that's what God said, so I backed off and did not invite Tyler into the worship system. Uh, he was very encouraging to the worship leaders we had, but I did hear from um, a friend of mine who worked with Steve Shogren. At this point, I had connected Steve. Uh, Steve Shogren was my church planting coach. And if you know who Dave Workman is, pastor of uh, Vineyard Cincinnati at, at that time, Tri-County Vineyard at that time, um, D- Dave was ascending pastor. And someone who worked for Steve, another guy, said, Van, he said, is Tyler Brown attending your church? And I said, yeah. And he said, and you're not using him to lead worship. I said, right? And he said, he's one of the best worship leaders in the city. He said, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? I just said, you know, you know, I really feel like it's just, we just need to let Tyler come and ease his way into this. And, and, you know, when the time's right, we'll all know it. And so, uh, towards the end of that, um, summer, Tyler visited one of our worship practices and, um, he didn't go away like, well, he might have laughed at what I was doing, probably did, but he didn't like laugh at me in my face or anything. And uh, I think he came to two and then, and the, the Durkers, man, they're, they're on the spotlight today. Jen Durkers, Jen, stand up and wave. Come on, come on. There's Jen. Jen was one of those very gracious worship leaders that used to come to those practices with, with me. 
And Jan called me and said, hey, you know, we've been waiting for the right guy to come along. She said, I think this guy, Tyler, I think he has what it takes to be our leader. And that I, I held Jen in high regard. And so I, I took that as, as, you know, this might be the right time. So I talked to Tyler about it. And it was the right time. He was ready. But then Tyler says, yeah, I'd love to do it. But, you know, uh, I don't have a guitar. So worship, I hired a worship leader without a guitar. But uh, um, we bought Tyler a guitar. And, and he started the worship, um, the worship ministry that we have. Don't we have a great worship ministry? Isn't that right? Yeah. 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 I just want to make, I just want to make it real clear that you all know I started that worship ministry. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. There you have it. The truth is out now. All right. So, uh. In, in Palm Sunday of 2002, we moved into the YMCA, and uh, that, was a, that was a great thing. We went from Saturday nights to Sunday mornings and recognized the sacrifice that was because I got to tell you what, it's nice not to, you know, to have Sunday morning to, to read the paper and drink coffee, and I said that to the church body. I said, we know what we're up against here. I said, it's, you know, people, you know, have a good thing going. And uh, so we've, we've really got to make this, this is going to be alive. There's going to be a reason for people to come. And not because we're going to put on a dog and pony show, but because God's presence is going to be here. And, and, his, and the reality of who he is is going to change people's lives. And, and the church grew. And it's 2004. In the spring of 2004, we had gone to two services. And the, the building itself was packed. I mean, just packed to the gills. Uh, and... I mean, total of people, probably 300 between the two services, but it's packed. We met in the basement of the YMCA. And um, everyone's worshiping, and it's just, uh, just a powerful worship set. And I'm standing there fretting. And, and I'm just standing there worrying. Because we're, we're looking for a new place to meet, and there isn't anything. Still, we can't qualify for the school system. And we're just not finding anything else nowhere else to meet. So I'm just thinking, God, what are we going to do? We've got all these people. What are we going to do? You know, there are more people coming. We don't have room for them. What are we going to do? And God spoke to me real clearly and very forcefully, uh, not, not in an angry force, but just very clearly and powerfully spoke to me and said, test me. That was it. Just test me. And I knew what that meant you're going to have to step out and try to do something you think you can't do. You're going to have to step out into some area that you don't think is going to work or is the potential is very slight that it's going to work. And uh, so there's the whole risk thing again. And later that day, God spoke those words to me, test me. And then that night we're watching TV. I'm in the middle of this movie or program. I can't remember what it was. And out of the blue, right in the middle of the show, those those words just penetrate my mind again, test me. So it was shortly after that, that uh, this property came available. And the way this property came about was uh, John Green, who was a a trustee at the time, was scouring uh, websites and looking for parcels of ground. And he found this five and a half acre parcel of ground. It was owned by an elderly gentleman named Mr. Malger. And so John called Mr. Malger and, um, Mr. Mauser answered the phone. John had written him a letter. 
And uh, Mr. Mauser answered the phone, said, yeah, I got your letter, and uh, this is not a good time to talk. Call me back again in a few days. So John called him back in a week, and the line was dead. The number had been disconnected. And so we're thinking, well, we don't know what's going on. But what had happened was Mr. Mauser's son had come up from Florida to take his dad down to Florida to live there. But they had decided to sell the property. And before he left, he gave that letter to a real estate agent and said, here, I want, the, I want you to sell it to this church. So that's cool, isn't it? Yeah. And this was just a su- sweet, godly gentleman um, that uh, had lived alone for I don't know, a couple of decades, I think. Have you ever been in the house of a man in his 90s who has lived alone? Anybody? Like my uncle, oddly, newspapers stacked this high all over the place. It wasn't that bad. But I've always thought the great miracle was he was able to save that letter and, and, and produce it when he wanted it. But... Uh, so we made an offer on the land immediately. We went in to sign the papers. They accepted the offer. We went in to sign the papers. And um, right, right as we're ready to, getting ready to sign the papers, someone else uh, made an offer that was bigger than ours. And so the real estate agent said, I have to present this to the family. And so Lori and John and I went into a room and sat for a half hour and prayed and said, well, what do we do? So we decided that we did not have to outbid the other person, that, um, that all we had to do was act in good faith and demonstrate that we realized that this, this was a special piece of land to these people and that they were giving it to us. We were getting a good deal. We, we wanted to make sure they knew that. So John and I both said, well, let's off up our offer from 350 to 360. Lori said, well, I was thinking we should up it to 370. And so we went with Lori's thoughts on that, and we upped it to 370. And it, we still did not bid the other bidder, but we got the land. They gave it to us. And so that was, it was just God working there to give us. And, it, and anybody that was around in those days will tell you, walking on this land, it was like there was peace here. It was just beautiful. It was just like you walk, it's the kind of place you'd want to say, well, let's just go have a picnic there. Let's just go, let's just push some of these weeds aside and lie down here. I mean, it was just really wonderful, beautiful, peaceful place. And so we uh, de- developed a, a, um, a facility team. We worked with High Five uh, Design Build Firm, which did a great job for us. And, uh, and we designed this building, all of it very intentionally. You know, there are things that you look at once you get the building done and you say, oh man, I should have put more space there, should have made that bigger, this, you know, but that's, that's with anything anybody ever builds. But a couple of the things that I thought were really special, one, uh, the, the floor out here, the, the uh, stained concrete floor that you see out in the atrium, that's intentional. As you look at it from a distance, it looks beautiful. When you walk right up on top of it, you look right down at it, you see the cracks and the marks and the scratches. You don't see those from a distance. And we just, I mean, that was, that was a prophetic type of a thing that God really built into the system. Let me say that. I said it was intentional. I don't mean that. But, but as soon as we saw it, we knew that's prophetic because from a distance, 
the, uh, you know, the church is beautiful. In God's eyes, the church is beautiful. You get up real close, you see the warts and the marks and the, and the ish, you know, problems. And so it was kind of prophetic of that. Now, the bricks were intentional. They're off-sized. They're not the biggest bricks. They're not the smallest bricks. They're mid-sized and they're called tumbled, which means they're roughed up. I don't know how they actually rough them up. I don't know if they put them in a big uh, drying machine and tumble them or what. But, um, but look at the bricks. And you'll see they're not these nice, neat, little crisp-edged, sharp-edged bricks. They're bigger and, and they're rougher. And, and we thought that's another reflection of who we are. Because God had given us this word at the very beginning that he would build this church out of broken people. And so uh, we just thought, okay, that's us. And that fits. But we, we did the whole design and we went through a giving campaign. And how many of you know that there is spiritual warfare all along the way? There is. And um, it, when you take risk, there's spiritual warfare, but you can press through that when you're, when you're taking risk. If you, just, if you just curl up in the bottom of a hole, then spiritual warfare still comes, but it takes you out. And so the day we started the giving campaign, um, we got up to a cold house because the company that was supposed to fill our propane tank uh, without us calling them had forgotten to. And so uh, we, we, we wake up that morning. I mean, it was cold. It was like February and it was really cold out. Second thing that happened right at that time was Lori came down with um, bronchitis, which turned into laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is a thing where your throat kind of shuts and you can't breathe. Very frightening thing. We even called 911 one night uh, because Lori couldn't breathe. And, and so that's happening, you know, throughout you know, throughout the whole giving thing, there's, there's, there's warfare like that. We come to the point where we come to the end of it and we have a big day at uh, receptions, which is, uh, they have one in Fairfield. They have a couple others around the city and um, we're going to have our big service there. And realize we have about 300, maybe 350 people at this time. And we come to this day and here's where the real testing came in. We had not existed long enough as a church to uh, go to a bank, and, and they were eager to give us. We, we can only find one bank. And, and they said, they told us how much money we had to have in order to, uh, you know, to put down in order to build this place. And so our goal was $665,000 in a cash one-day offering for 350 people. And then we, our goal was, in, in addition to that, another 500000 Well, we came to that day, got up that morning, and Lori and I both kind of said, let's just not go. <laughs> let's call in sick today. Uh, are we crazy? Are, we're looking at each other and saying, are we crazy? Do we? I had already talked to the, to the design build firm about... Um, well, how about if we just put up a, a steel um, building, a prefab building instead of a, you know, and, um, and so we go to this and, uh, you know, I wish I could say we go there with great faith, but uh, we did go there taking risk and risk is faith. All right. It's not momentary sense of assurance that is faith. It is the willingness to risk in, in the lack of momentary emotional assurance. That's what faith is. And so we go there and our goal was 665. They tallied all of the gifts and we got $775,000 in a one day offering. 
Yeah, yeah. In addition to that, another 500,000 committed over a three-year period. Now, um, that the people gave land. One family gave a plot of land they had. Other people gave jewelry. Uh, they gave family heirlooms. Of course, people gave stock and stuff like that, but uh, cash and gifts. Our goal was for everybody to give something so everyone could cheer when we came here and had our first service. That was it. Just everyone, give something so, we can, so you can cheer when we get here. And, uh, but it was an amazing thing to see and an amazing thing um, to experience. Now, we, we, actually, we actually received, I'm not sure whether it was 80 or 90%, but we received a very high percentage of that. And, and, and oftentimes when money's committed over a period of time, you, you don't get, you know, obviously things happen in people's lives and they aren't able to fulfill everything. But we got close to 90%, I think it was, of that, which is a testament to the people that uh, were here that, that did this and gave in that way. Now, you do need to know this. When I tell you this, that money's all gone, okay? I don't want you to, anyone to sit here and think, oh, man, we're set. You know, <laughs> let's all go to Disney World or, you know, whatever. Uh, we, we spent that money on this building, and then for those three years, we used the money that had been committed to make the payments on the building before we actually entered into making those payments out of the ongoing budget. And so, um, so everything that we do here is funded by the church body. We don't have any outside source of funding. You, you really need to know that. There's, the vineyard doesn't come along and say, oh, you need, here, here, we're going to give you 100000 No, nothing like that. Um, and so, but um, it, it was just an exciting and, and powerful time. Um, we had received a prophetic word at the very beginning that went like this. It said, when this church is birthed, no one will wonder who its daddy is. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah, I like that. It, it would be obvious, this is God. And people would look at me and say, that goofball, he could never do anything like this. And, and it's, it has to be God. And so, so that's where we want to live. That's where we want to live in that whole realm. Uh, at the very beginning, we used to say, we want people to come here because they have a friend whose life was changed here. You know, we didn't, not because we're doing something slick advertising or some new big dog and pony show or anything like that. But yeah, my life was changed. I encountered God there. Uh, you know, I got off heroin. My life, our marriage was saved. You know, I, I found joy. I was depressed. I broke out of my depression and I found joy when I went there because I met God and he changed my life. I mean, what better thing than that to have happen? To have people going out and talking to their friends about the life of Jesus and how he gave them life. Now, earlier I shared a verse that I want to go back to and touch on. And, um, that was the verse that, that we received as a promise, Isaiah 37, 30. Did I, I didn't share that with you, did I? Okay, this is the right time to do that then. When we moved here, um, 1999, God gave me this verse. And it just as a, a, a promise from God, like a prophetic type of a reading of this verse where I read it and I said, this is God making a promise to us. And here's what the verse said. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. 
But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Now, when I got that verse when we first came here, I thought that meant that we're going to have two rough years. And then the third year at the church that I came to pastor, we were going to see things just bust open and there was going to be fruitfulness. And I, I took the vineyard, uh, not literally, but metaphorically as just the kingdom of God and God's presence breaking in and breaking through. But as it turned out, that was literally true because it was at the beginning of our third year that we planted this church. It was the beginning of our third year that, uh, that, that we entered into this season of church life that we have here at Vineyard Northwest. So that's pretty cool, don't you think? Yeah, I love that. But here's what I really love is that years can be years or a year could be a season of time. And in, in the Old Testament, a season of years was seven years. And so we have been through two of our seven-year seasons to this point. Does that make sense? We're, we're in our 15th year right now. Well, we're concluding our 15th, entering our 16th year. And that means we are at the beginning of this third season of time, this third season of God's work here. And it's in the third season that we're going to see God do what he has promised us he was going to do. It's in this third season that we're going to see new things break out that we haven't even dreamed of before. And it's in this third season that we're going to see the impact of this church body multiply and, and become more than any of us have dreamed of. We had a prophet at the beginning of the church uh, named Tom Barger. Tom went to be with the Lord a number of years ago. But Tom was very straight with me, and he would shake his head once in a while and say, Van, I don't think you get how big this thing is, that, what God wants to do here. And I'd say, Tom, I'm trying to get it. What do you mean I don't get it? <laughs> but uh, I, I understand better what he means now. Um, we're going we're gonna to enter into an era where we impact this city. We're already entering into that. Now, in the past, I wouldn't have said that because I would have thought like, felt like I was bragging or worse than that. I would have felt like somebody was going to look at me and say, you know, come on, stop. You're, 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 you're uh, a fool, you know, to think that. But uh, th- this is God, okay? And, and so I'm, I'm happy to say that we're going to enter into an era where we impact this city in a powerful way. Yeah. And we are already in that. Do you know house group? There are five house groups around this city already. At least 150 people coming to them every week. That's a, that's a, the citywide impact is beginning. Lori and I were just asked to serve as area leaders for the vineyard. So we have, we're going to be having a deeper relationship with 10 other vineyard churches here in the city, calling their leaders and meeting with them and talking to them. And they're going to be, healing on the streets is going to change the city. Yeah, it is. And so we're entering into that third season, and that's pretty cool. We, we had this as our mission statement. Our mission is to welcome people into the healing presence of Christ. Okay, that's pretty cool. You know, come and you'll experience Jesus' presence. Because we wanted people to come into this building, come into contact with this body, know Jesus is here, accept Jesus, get saved, their lives are changed. But I think that God's changing that. 
I think there's a new nuancing of that. And that is because this is very much come here focused. We're going to welcome them when they happen to come along. I think what, what, we're, what we're moving into is a season where we're, we're going to say something more like our mission is to carry the presence of God out into our city. Okay, our mission is to carry God's presence everywhere we go and take God's presence to people and see their lives changed everywhere we go. So carrying the, and that means carrying the kingdom of God, carrying heaven, heaven coming to earth through you, heaven coming to earth through us. As we press into understanding faith more, understanding the presence of God more, understanding what it means to be carriers of the kingdom and how that can change people's lives and change this city. Uh, this, the next sermon series for the rest of this summer is going to be on faith. It's going to be on faith to walk in God's presence, faith to speak when, we, when, when God asks us to, faith to trust him when we don't see him working. We're going to go through all these different angles on faith this summer uh, just to build this church body up. And, I, and I, boy, I, I want to see you here for that. It's going to have a profound impact on the heart of our church and on the future impact that, that God has for us. So right now what we're going to do... Um, well, this, I want to end with this. You know, for this all to happen, uh, you know, just like we started out with the vineyard, we said, if we're going to be part of this, then we're going to do our part. And, and when, we, when we put this building up, there were people that just sacrificed for that to happen. And so I want to just say to all of us here, you're part of this, and I, want, and I just want to call this out, do your part, okay? Every one of us has to do our part. There's none of us that can sit back. None of us can hunker down and say, oh, I'm just going to stay here where it's safe. You know, I'm tired. Life is long. Life, I'm just, you know, I'm going to play it safe. No, it's, there's no safe way to play it safe. And, and I'm calling each one of you out to say, and calling you out, I don't mean that in a negative way, but just calling out of you, speaking out of you. Engage, engage. You know, we, all, we say all the time, if you've come here three times, you're a regular, right? Okay, so if you've come here three times, you're part of this. Don't sit back and say, well, someone else is going to do it. Some, no, each one of us need to be pressing in to understand the Holy Spirit better. Pressing into Holy Spirit-based ministry. Pressing into our relationship with Jesus. Every one of us need to do that. Every one of us need to find places to serve around here. And then to be faithful and come and do it, even when we're tired, because it's what God's calling us to do. Every one of us need to begin to view ourselves as carriers of God's presence and of his kingdom. And every one of us need to give. This place wouldn't be here if people hadn't sacrificed land and family heirlooms and, uh, and all sorts of personal things. And, and given, laid it out there, risked, take. And, and we all need to give because that's the only way this is going to expand for, for, the, for the ministries to happen that we, that we want to have happen. We all get to be part of that. So, um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to worship now. And um, we're going to um, have communion today, which uh, is something that is for those that, that if you've accepted Jesus, we want you to be part of this. And what we do with this is we pick up a little cracker that represents the body of Jesus. And, and I'm saying I had a real living Savior who gave his body for me. And I dip that cracker in the juice. And uh, the juice represents his blood, which he shed for me. And I eat it then, which, which is saying, man, I, I can't live without Jesus. 
And so that's, that's just a concrete, tangible way we worship. And Lucas is going to come up right now and lead us into the next section of the service. So.